Hello and welcome to another episode of that 60s recording podcast, the podcast that has conversations inspired by the golden era of recording. My name is Joe Montague and I am your host. I, had a, I hope you've all had a lovely week, let's start with that. Um, I've had lots of nice emails, lots of people and messages and things, people enjoying last week's episode with the BBC old timers as we're calling them. Um, also a few emails from people who have discovered the podcast for the first time and who've are diving back through old episodes, particularly the Ken Scott episode, that seems to be the most popular by far. If you if you haven't found the, the Ken Scott episode, it's episode number two, um, and it seems to be everybody's favourite. It never never goes out of the, the top listens. <laughs> um, so yeah, welcome if you're just discovering it, um, and if you haven't dived back through the archive, please do. Um, I'm not going to do too much waffle today. I'm just going to let you get straight on to the BBC Old Timers Part 2. Um, so here we go. Enjoy. Are you ready for my attempt at an advert? Here it comes. Make Noise Pro Audio, a specialist in used pro audio equipment. And since 2015, they've been on an endless quest to supply all things modern, old, vintage and obscure. Everything from outboard, microphones, synthesizers, audio interfaces, drum machines, mixing consoles, studio monitors, amplifiers, cabling, furniture, and everything in between. Go and check them out at makenoiseproaudio.co.uk. Sam's a lovely chap. Definitely go and do it. Enjoy the episode. Phil, I'm wondering if I could ask you some some questions about... uh, Sort of tape hopping in general in situations such as we've been speaking about. On the tape hopping front, fundamentally, we recorded everything onto quarter inch tape. Most of our machines in Manchester were studio A80s, cracking machines. But a thing that, I mean, it now scares me to death is that we would be editing the master tapes. We would be putting razor blades through the master tapes. So more or less one chance to get it right. <laughs> and we'd be doing that on... So the BBC Philharmonic might be in the studio, Graham had done the balance, and then afterwards the producer and, and I would sit and edit it. And it's almost... I mean, I, I didn't think about it too much at the time, but when I think back, you know, if you cock that up, the cost of that that <laughs> error was just <laughs> phenomenal because you can completely wreck the uh, the whole thing um paul was talking about recording the northern radio orchestra that was perhaps the hardest editing job paul had to work crazily fast to get his mix together because the band wanted to get off to the pub Um, (laughs) uh, and so not only did the mix have to be sort of right first time and the band had to play it right first time which they nearly always did the edits had to be done in real time, so we will be doing the edits, uh, again, quarter-inch tape, on a piece of Radio 2 late-night music. I would be editing it while Paul was m- mixing the next one. You know, the tape machine on my left will be in record, and I'd be editing on the one on my right. But the sound level in that room was crazy, particularly in the early days, before we got any proper monitors in there. We had these massive JBL things which they weren't loud, but they weren't accurate. So that meant I had to have headphones turned up loud so I could hear that the edits were going through okay. And I think that's why my ears whistle now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
I was militant, Phil. I would never do it. I, if I couldn't hear the edit, I wouldn't make the edit. And I wouldn't tolerate the high sound levels, which is hopefully why my ears still work. But I was considered to be highly bolshy, which was actually quite <laughs> handy because it meant they didn't send me down there that often. Because I hated doing it. It was yeah. it, it was a blessing in disguise, really. Uh, for me, but, it was something I absolutely loved. This fantastic band... They'd come in, they'd all, you know, some of them might have even still be drunk from the night before. They'd only just really? finished some overnight session. They turn up, they're tuning up. It's an utterly dreadful sound. And then quite often they were sight reading to tape. Yeah. And as soon as the red light yeah. went on, it was magic beyond your wildest dreams. The sound they would make. Oh, my God, it was fantastic. So, yeah, I'd put up with the uh, high levels. <laughs> Well, the famous complaint was always on Monday morning, too many notes on this pad this morning because they were all still sort of recovering from their weekend gigs and um, they wanted something nice and easy to play. <laughs> uh, final thought on tape hopping. It wasn't always music. You know, you edited much more speech than you edited music. And we did, and it still goes out now, a, a weekly kind of journalism programme called File on Four. Oh, yeah. And that went out straight after the Archers on a Tuesday evening. And we had two days of studio time booked to sort this thing out. But they invariably never turned up to do anything serious until after lunch on the Tuesday. So it was a real last-minute panic to get the programme. We recorded it in the studio, edited it, and then as soon as the Archers finished, the continuity announcer would speak and we would play the tape. But on many occasions... We hadn't finished the edit before the programme started. So (laughs) you'd kind of put a cut through the tape, play what you had, and then you had to edit the the rest. And it had to be finished by the time the first tape ran out. Scary, scary, scary. (laughs) Sounds it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I mean, I remember one file on four where we actually put the programme out on five tape reels, one after the other. uh, Because there were legal problems... So we'd put five minutes on to get the programme started while the next five minutes was being legaled. It was being played down the line to the legal expert who would say yay or nay, change this, change that. So that was done. That tape would come back into the studio and the person that was in the editing channel would be working on the next one, tidying it up and then playing it down for legaling. So uh, one of the programmes, we ended up with five separate reels and the programme still finished on time. So (laughs) that was Sue Stone Street and myself did that one. Five reels in a 40-minute programme. Crazy. A digital variant on that was the morning church service on Christmas Day 2000, was it, Paul, you were there in Jerusalem? Jerusalem, And (laughs) we'd had to pre-record the service and we had a little digital editing device that was really set out very much like a tape machine for people who were used to operating and editing on tape. And it was quite versatile for fairly simple stuff. Its real virtues was you could edit on on it and, and have an edited version ready very, very quickly. And on this particular occasion, the producer was messing about this pre-recorded service and as we came up to UK 8 o'clock, I had the return programme feed and I said, Stephen, when the pips sound, 
I'm going to stop editing this programme because we'll be playing it out in 10 seconds. <laughs> and, oh, oh, right, oh, oh, okay. So as the first pip sounded, I hit save, went back to the top of the file, and the continuity announcer, that was the person linking the programmes, said, and now we go over to Jerusalem for our Christmas Day morning service, and I hit the playback button. And I think that's the fastest turnaround I've ever done of an editing session. And I said, you know, if the timings are not correct, then, you know, we just tell continuity what the file length and they'll have to sort it out. But anyway, it was all all right and we got out. But it was the digital equivalent of the file on four editing, really, uh, except you didn't have to rewind it, which was wonderful. <laughs> Yeah, the, the problem with that particular machine was that there was only ever one version of the program and it was sat on the hard drive on that machine. Uh, with quarter-inch tape, you could lift it off and take it onto another machine and cut it on another machine, or you could duplicate it. But the problem with the shortcut was it wasn't. And on that same gig that Graham was doing the Sunday worship on, I was doing the Sunday program, and the whole program was on one of these shortcut machines, which developed a fault and uh, every three or four times when you press stop it would not go into play again afterwards and so it Ooh. took me until about five o'clock in the morning to actually put the program together into such a state where it could be played out so i was cursing that particular machine that day yeah it's a motherboard fault with it it was a motherboard fault it wasn't really designed to be thrown around in aircraft holds and the cards came out of their sockets but I thought it had all been solved by judicious application of superglue. You'd have probably had to smash the machine up to get the cards out after maintenance put the superglue in, but uh, they didn't normally fall out in service. You must have just been unlucky with one. No, I think there were two or three that failed the same way after they'd been used for a while because people got used to using them in the same way as you did with the cartridge machine. And with the studies, you could hammer the stop, start, forward, rewind, whatever you wanted to do. With a shortcut, yeah. you do the same thing, and eventually the contacts wore. And it was a problem, actually, with the quality of the switches that they'd used and the fact that you were putting excessive pressure on the switches when you were hammering the thing. Anyway, that's, uh, that was an interesting transition period, that was. But it was the same thing that, of course, broke the studio desks in the studios in the end, that the, all the control knobs were mounted on bridges above LCD displays and yeah. because of the hammer we gave it the knobs, the, the bridges flexed and punched holes in the LCD screen <laughs> so it all stopped working so so yeah people mm. have often said oh your machines must be very high quality and I say no, they're just built like washing machines, <laughs> they, they, they need to stand hammer and that is, uh, Joe you might not appreciate that that in the world of outside brokers and things like that, the equipment really does need to be built to stand industrial-scale hammer, if you like. They used to call that making the equipment ruggedized when I started. Yeah, ruggedized. Yeah. 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 Bomb-proof. Um, <laughs> professional. Bomb-proof, yeah. Well, this is it, professional, and I think it goes to show why, you know, across the world, BBC patents 
have sort of stood the test of time. You know, we all use Coles microphones and uh, mm. BBC has become revered as a, a sort of stamp mark of quality on audio equipment. And, it, you know, you can see why it needs to, to be. Yeah, I think you'll find, actually, uh, Joe, that the BBC invented PCM. Ah. It was part of the 13-channel distribution system for going from London up to the transmitters through a chain of microwave relays all the way up the country. And they found that they could code 13 channels, but they had to code the audio digitally, first of all. And uh, the, can, the... can I just jump in there, Paul? PCM was first invented by the GPO. So it was first used on telephone links. And then, as you say, the BBC made it higher quality and used it for the spine, as it was called. And then they they hadn't room to put Radio 1 in high quality up it because there weren't enough channels. And so they modified it using a companding system called NICAM, which fitted more channels into the same amount of bitrate. And so that was how we got Radio 1 in stereo all the way up the country. It was the modification of the original PCM system. But it was actually developed from telephones and that system was still used until comparatively recently until really they went into net protocol it used 8-bit sampling at an 8 kilohertz sampling rate and used 64 kilobit channels for the telephone calls which is why isdn had 64 kilobit channels that came from the telephone coding all oh, right i hadn't realized that oh uh, yeah yeah it was a development of the gpo's Patent. I attended a lecture during my induction course at the start of my BBC career in, in actually at BBC Birmingham on PCM and I remember people talking enthusiastically about filling up the sinks which were a waste, you know, there's wasted space in the uh, synchronisation pulses in a television signal with the very technology we're talking about now. I don't remember a lot about the lecture but I think it was someone who had... Um, written a paper for a Studio Sound or something like that. But that was that was That was called SIS. Sound in Sinks. Yeah, it was a BBC development of really the same technology that they used yes, for was, the links yeah. of the country. But yeah. they were talking about it in 69. You know, it's really quite remarkable. Um, you know, it's such a long while ago, it seems to me. When I joined in 72, I think it was actually in service. Yeah, it would, be. It would have been. Yeah. SIS coders. And then, of course... When we moved to digital, Sony produced a digital encoder that allowed you to record a hi-fi CD quality digital signal on a, an ordinary video cassette recorder. It was made for their Betamax recorders and it coded up the, uh, the hi-fi audio to look like a television picture, a series of black and white bars. And that was recorded onto a video cassette and played back from the video cassette. And we adopted it in Manchester within, oh, a very few weeks of being introduced to the system for backup recordings. Phil was talking earlier about, you know, you were cutting transmission tapes. And if you had a machine fault or a tape fault, particularly with a recorded concert, you could lose thousands of pounds worth of orchestral fees because you'd made a bad recording. So rather than back it up on analog, I suggested we bought these PCM coders and some Betamax machines. And we just, you couldn't edit from it. You could only record onto it and play back from it. But that gave us cover 
in case anything happened to the analog tapes because we had a, an unflawed digital recording which we could at a pinch copy back onto the analog tapes and recover anything where as Phil said something had gone wrong in the editing or something had gone wrong in the recording itself we could replace the damaged section and there would be no loss of quality and oh there was a lot of fuss from the management and in the end the only way I got round it was saying to them if we do it on analogue machines we'll spend at that time £3,000 a machine for two machines and the tapes will cost something like 20 quid per half hour to use if we use the PCM system it will cost us just under £1,000 for the whole kit, and the tapes cost £2.50 for three hours. And that was what convinced them. Nothing to do with quality, nothing about progress, nothing about moving to digital. Oh, no, it was cheaper. And that's what I mean, swayed the day. That's something I'm, I'm quite interested in as a final, you know, sort of... I know that you guys were sort of all involved during this analog era and then obviously it sort of moved towards pro tools in, and, a, and a digital age what was that progression like and a big company like the bbc being slow to change in a lot of respects can be quite a good thing however obviously it can be infuriating as well so what was the transition to to sort of modern modern times like and what lessons can be learned from it in a in a lessons in a positive and negative way so you know there must have been things that were were being introduced that were making your life more difficult that would have been better staying the same and vice versa yeah there was a a big political thing going on at the same time where the bbc was being battered by governments john burt had been put in producer choice had started all around the same time and there was this big move towards doing desktop editing by producers, which was basically to remove or reduce the number of operators that were required to make programmes. Hence the huge redundancies that happened in the engineering size of the, the industry at that point. So our whole view of it is going to be tainted by the fact that they were trying to get rid of us with this new digital kit. <laughs> so uh, having said that, we had to adopt it. But which turned out to be harder to work than the analogue kit it replaced. Mm. So they couldn't get rid of us after all. It became very obvious that the producers were not... Uh, they were producers, not engineers, and they weren't up to operating the kit to the same standards that we'd I think that I think there was one, one thing that occurred to me at this time. Um, there was a move in the late 90s to create a new role in, in news particularly called the video journalist where a journalist would actually do some of the camera operation and um, I rather unkindly described the BBC attitude to this was that if if you go to Dixon's and buy a, a camera you must be a cameraman you know because when we obviously know with our background and everybody knew that that doesn't quite work anyway we did have uh, there were negotiations with Beck too and um, my particular attitude wasn't really to block this, having seen Fleet Street move to Wapping and all the technicians losing their jobs. I thought this shouldn't happen at the BBC, uh, there should be no tendency to this. And I said, if you create a new role, this is with my union hat on, if you create a new role which effectively combines two existing roles, then both traditions should be able to apply for the position. In other words, it shouldn't just make technicians redundant and create journalists who can operate equipment. That that combined role ought to be available to technicians. 
And uh, in fact, I was one of the people who benefited from this, if benefit is the word, because I became effectively a video journalist and I was doing that sort of work when I left. You know, this kind of idea that... Um, uh, the, the technology had become so simple that anyone could do it if they went to a, the high street and bought a camera. I think the other thing I would say about the move from analog to digital is I've always thought that when we introduce something new, we effectively it's like electrifying the horse. You know, we sort of, we have a horse and we have a we we build a machine that looks like a horse and it sort of operates like a horse, but it's actually run on electricity or or something. And I think that's the kind of a thing that happens in our culture anyway. And I think the mistake we make is trying to be too insistent upon this. And I, I remember one of the big problems that we had with the change to digital wasn't anything to do with equipment, it was to do with labels. Because before we uh, had servers and digital recordings of programmes and things, we had tapes which were in boxes, and you could have the, the title of a programme on a box, and it was different on the label, on the spool. And you still you still <laughs> managed to, to get away with this, you know. It's a bit of head-scratching. Oh, that must, be, that must go with that, you know. Um, after the introduction of the digital age, you, you had to be absolutely accurate in the way you labelled anything on, on the server. And in fact, uh, things uh, for transmission were usually in fully capital letters in Manchester. That's soon to work there. And if you didn't do that, the system didn't recognise that that was the programme tape. You know, that was the tape for transmission. And I think those are the kinds of things, those are the difficulties we had. We forged ahead on the technical sort of issues, but the actual culture of using them came much more slowly. That's how I would describe it. Yeah, it's interesting that uh, I spent an awful lot of time in very small editing studios on Pro Tools, tidying up programs and making them broadcastable that had been quite literally hacked together by the production staff. And they cut all the bits together that they wanted in the program, uh, then said, right, Paul, uh, there you are, turn that into a program. Uh, it <laughs> needs to be 27 minutes 30. <laughs> so so I'd, I'd spent a lot of time working for Radio Features putting programs mm. together on Pro Tools. Why do you think that I let it be known that I couldn't work the equipment? Because <laughs> you didn't want to be in a darkened room all day, Graham. Uh, well, that was the only time I ever did that. And in actual fact, I wasn't very good at it, and I was never a particularly good editor. But the idea of staring at a television screen all day, editing programs, oh, yeah. terrified me. So I'm afraid to say I um, just said I'm no good at this, which is entirely true, and never really made any effort to learn. And I still don't like the nitpicking post-production that that type of editing brought in. It was a bit like word processing. Previously, you typed out the document, and if you could read it and it looked okay, then that was fine. When word processors came in, you spent longer fiddling about trying to make it look that little bit better than you had actually writing the document originally. So uh, that was a downside of digital post-production for me, that it made so many more things possible. People tended to use those possibilities and it made the whole thing so much longer and for me so much more tedious i was much happier in the program gathering field and i was really happy with live broadcasts because they couldn't mess you about with retakes afterwards whatever went <laughs> oh, on now, now you can see why i was so happy to get those portable pro tools kits made up so that i could go out and do 
music recordings with them, <laughs> which was my way back into doing music after the NRO folded. Funnily enough, I actually own a portable Pro Tools kit, uh, which we were playing with earlier, and I've used it for exactly that sort of thing because it is better than carrying around a tape machine. But I really don't like having to do much of the post-production stuff on it. And it will do so many things, probably more, oh, yeah, than, we, it's fabulous. We need, more than we needed for our job, which made it, you know, that bit harder to use. I mean, I know you never liked the shortcuts, but one of the things I liked about the shortcuts were they were so simple. When they worked, and they worked well, and I still own one, and yeah, it still works. They changed the motherboard design so that, we didn't have this cards falling out problem and it works fine it gets used quite frequently and it the nice thing was it was so simple uh, i once edited together a whole sunday morning service in an african bush hut in zimbabwe um <laughs> and literally we had the recording kit and a shortcut i edited the shortcut and gave the presenter adapt tape to take back to London. And that was the good thing about digital, really, that the equipment became much more manageable for that sort of thing. If you had to do that on analog and carry tape machines, you wouldn't have done the programme. It wouldn't have happened. But because we had the more lightweight digital stuff in the main, it could happen, and it did. Yeah, I mean, I use Pro Tools in a slightly different way than you use your shortcut, though, because... Pro Tools, I found out that the problem with Pro Tools in the early days was SCSI speed and the hard drive not being able to keep up with the amount of channels that it would record. So I went back to sort of first principles and started using Pro Tools as a mixing system, but mixing live. So I had a box with motorised faders on it. I had a thing called an Octopre which they still make, actually, a version of, yes. uh, which gave me eight mic inputs. I've got that plus the two in an M box, so I've got a 10-input desk, virtual desk within Pro Tools, which I then bounced down onto two tracks. You could then edit those two tracks in the same way as you did with quarter-inch if you had to, and I did several gigs with that. All yeah. the stuff in Bern in Switzerland I did straight on a Pro Tools. And in, in fact, some of that went out live because there was, yeah, we did uh, Pro Tools into an ISDN and then uh, out to London for the Sunday worships. And of course, we haven't talked about ISDN. I thought that might have come into things, but we haven't talked about that. That was another one where it was very difficult to get the BBC to adopt it over analogue lines. And the only reason they did start to take it seriously was when BT shoved up the price of analogue lines, but I think it was a factor of 10. That's right, yeah. Interesting little anecdote that having banged my head against brick walls various about getting ISDN adopted, I got a phone call one morning. I was in the bath and um, the phone rang and it was the big boss at work who said, Graham, can you come in? We've got a real problem. We need your advice on ISDN. And I said, um, well, yeah, when would you like me in? Could you come in now? I said, no, not unless you want me in a dressing gown. Um, I'll come in after lunch. So I went in and it turned out the BT contract, when it was renewed, the prices had shot up enormously and they wanted me to plan an ISDN strategy. 
for music lines so that we could move away from the BT analog lines. And that was the first time that the management really took digital program gathering transmission seriously. Previously, we'd managed on a using analog circuits, but as soon as that contract ran out, the BBC dumped the whole thing. We'd also used PCM, funnily enough, over television links with the FDI right. codec because they realised they had radio link staff and circuits that were very often. They'd no work for them, but they were still being paid. So they quite simply used the marginal time and they sent out a radio link crew. So a lot of outside broadcasts, instead of becoming lines, we fed the audio into this Sony codec, we fed the video output into the radio links van, and radio links shoved it down a television circuit which, because they were lying idle, paid for, it was marginal cost, so it was cheaper to do that than to buy any circuits of any description, and quite a lot was done like that. Yeah. It looked very impressive as well, because there was a great big tall tower and dishes and things. But it was all done in marginal time, therefore minimal extra cost. And that was another digital benefit that we got over and above analogue. And now, of course, ISDN, having been poo-pooed for ages, is apparently still in use. They're just about to finish supporting it. But, what, 30 years on, it's still in active use. Very interesting. I mean, I, I'll, I'll be honest, this side of the, the technical stuff is stuff I don't know a huge amount about, but I'm going to look into it. And it's interesting to know that on the, you know, on the face of it, you guys are, are presented with challenges moving to digital and modernising that, that seem... Well, they, they seem quite simple compared to some of these major, you know, the support network and the, the sort of network throughout the country of, of how you distribute the sound that you're actually recording. It's much bigger issues <laughs> than, than necessarily sort of microphones and tape machines and all of that kind of stuff. There's, you know, the whole support network needs up, well, needs to be upgraded. I'm talking sort of 20 years ago or 40 years ago. Needed upgrading. Yes. Um, there's a new challenge now, which is to reliably integrate it with well, the sort of stuff that we're using to put this program together. Systems over Wi-Fi, broadband, IP distribution networks that don't introduce ridiculous latency and can mm. cope with the fact that the signals are not circuit switched anymore, like ISDN, where what you poured in at one end came out consistently at the other end where it's now packetized and maybe subject to delays or packets arriving in the wrong order, things like that. Those are the new challenges, how to overcome that without having to have enormous amounts of buffering and latency and loss of, occasional loss of quality. You know, the previous BBC, the slightest glitch on audio and there was an inquest. <laughs> and now they put up with yeah, people right. going all carpet tiled and blocked on you know live on the six o'clock news people will break up and start to sound like daleks and nobody seems to bat an eyelid and that's a mindset change from when we were trying to make the transition from analog to digital i think it's something that we as consumers experience in our daily lives when we're you know facetiming or speaking to family and friends and work colleagues on a daily basis we're we're being presented with those same challenges so we're used to hearing them those problems when you know when i'm listening to the news on the way here on radio 4 
there was a, a phone line cut out or you know bubbled whilst while someone's yeah. talking to them and you know that's yeah. that's a noise that I'm really used to hearing so you know and there that, would, that there would have been an inquest yeah there would have been an <laughs> inquest in my day if if that had failed well there was a there was there was somebody's job in every uh, you, you know because the tv and radio was distributed over, over what graham referred to as the spine before or you know it was it was distributed from london and it went to birmingham and it went out to bristol from london or birmingham to manchester manchester to newcastle and leeds and so because it was done in that way there was someone in every one of those places who monitored Radio 4 all the time, that was their job. And if there was a glitch, you know, a momentary noise, a distracting noise on the circuit, they would chase it all the way down the line until they found, you know, OK, this must have occurred between London and Birmingham or something, you know. I mean, I mean, that's enormously labour-intensive by comparison with the... I think it's probably... I mean, it would be my estimation that news has contributed a lot to what we might call the general acceptance of technical problems with the pictures and sound. And I think probably when you look back to the assassination of John Kennedy, uh, there was some amateur footage used. It was bought from a guy called Zapruder who happened to have his camera running at the time. And he couldn't even keep Kennedy in the frame. That's the footage we watch. And they trot it out every time the Kennedy assassination is a reference is made. And um, if there had been professional footage, that Zapruder footage would never have made it, you know, I mean, because we would have habitually used the professional footage. If you compare that with the death of Donald Campbell on Coniston in, in round about the same time, I think it was three years later, that was shot by a professional cameraman. And every time Death of Campbell's mentioned, we see this perfect backflip and the death of this poor man. Absolutely spot on in frame, you know. That was BBC commissioned from a freelance cameraman who was there um, to cover the attempt. And I think we have become, as a people, accustomed to accept a lesser quality because the news editor will say, well, we'll use what we've got. And if that's what we've got, that's what we'll use. And that's crept in everywhere. Just going back to your inquest on the slightest glitch the phrase it's all right leaving me has entered into the bbc lexicon as a result of that it's our catchphrase yeah, yeah absolutely good thank you for reminding me of that yeah i think journalists have got a lot to answer for haven't they really well, I don't know what we would expect of them. I mean, it sounds as if I'm critical of this, but I just wonder what we would do. You see, I've always said, you know, you were talking before about um, retakes and w- whether you'd done it before and whether, you know, that's the sort of thing. And it reminded me of a kind of a, an ethic that I had. Over the retake, people would say, thinking now perhaps of more of the television work that I did, you know, you did an interview and a, and a bit of dangling jewellery happened to strike the personal mic of the contributor, which um, perhaps had been, the mic had been fitted rather hastily and this wasn't perceived as being a possibility. And and then at the end of it, you know, I said, everybody happy with that? And I would say, well, I'm not quite happy about that. This was a bit of a sound rustle on the mic. Can we, can we do it again, please? And, of course, there would be an issue, especially if the contributor wasn't a professional. Oh, do we have to make them go through it again for what was only just a bit of mic rustle or a bit of clothing rustle or something? And I would say it was looking as if we were going to have to accept this dodgy recording. I would say, you don't pay me enough to just come here for the money. (laughs) And we really need to be satisfied that we've met a professional standard. 
And, you know, the producer would scratch his head or her head and say, oh, go on, we'll do it again then, you know. And I think that was always thought to be obstructive, I think, really, because people would say, well, it's only just a little glitch on the sound. Um, the general public has become accustomed to Crap. seeing technical faults uh, <laughs> adulterating the quality that we all used to strive for. Um, yeah. I mean, I would say it's generally it's been driven by the news. News has become much more important, I think, in the minds of the public, and and because it happens in news that we show um, footage which could be a lot better uh, if it was done professionally. I mean, there's there's this issue also about what is often called incorrectly called citizen journalism. Citizen news gathering would be a better way of describing it because, of course, it's always professionally produced, but it's shot and uh, or it's collected from sources which are mobile phone cameras that are not even being held. I was just about to right say they held them horizontally; you know? it would help enormously. Yeah. People have become come to accept that. I mean, I've, I've I've tired of saying to people, "Hold it the other way. That's not the same shape as your yeah. TV." You know. Oh, and it's yeah. more it's handier to hold it like this. You know. And then, you, of course, you've got these huge areas to the left and and right of the important uh, bits of the picture that you've got to fill with something. It's a complete joke, isn't it? We've been persuaded to buy these bigger, brighter, high-definition, ultra-high-definition televisions, and then we're shown mobile phone footage on them. <laughs> <laughs> it seems to me to be a complete paradox. Uh, to be fair, Graham, I actually do use my mobile very often for producing what I, I think are professional films, you know. But, I mean, it's, they aren't easy to hold in the, um, no. in the landscape kind of mode. And, you know, you've got handling problems anyway with them. It seems to me the professional will always be able to produce something which is usable, even with the dodgiest of equipment. Uh, in Indeed. the same way that a professional violinist can produce, you know, a really good product with a cheap violin. You know, you can do this if you're in the know. But, of course, most of the people who contribute stuff to um, what I called before citizen news gathering, I mean, the police beat to death an innocent newspaper seller not long ago, and it was only because it was captured on a mobile phone that the, the culprit was brought to justice. Yeah. I think, you know, it is important that we accept these things, and so with reluctance, what we're doing is opening the door on the detrimental effect on the quality we've all striven for all our lives. You know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, yeah. this is and it's an interesting... Not quite in this respect, but this is something that we see, or I, I hear on the podcast quite a lot, with engineers that I've spoken to who are trained through bigger institutions, so whether that was Abbey Road or Trident or some of the bigger studios, you go through a, a series of training where somebody shows you this is the way that, the best way to phrase it is probably this is the way that we've done it up until now, and this is the way we expect you to do it right now. And then once you've learned that way, you can then move forward and, and begin to to do what you want to do. Um, you know, Jeff Emmerich at Abbey Road is a great example of somebody that decided to do things slightly differently. But he had the training previously of the sort of the correct way, if you like, or, or the way that produces the results that everyone expects. And that's something that you guys as professionals did. You know, you... you well, I talked to Phil about the training that you all did, at, you know, the, the the training facility, I think it was at Wood Norton, he said. And, you know, you'll have all been given training to produce certain results. 
what we see as consumers now is we have the facilities to produce any kind of results. You know, we can make films on our phones. We can make records on our phones if we want to, but there is no training. So that's the difference between a professional mm. and an amateur. In, mm. And it might not be that those differences are quite as serious as, as somebody might think. So you're talking about the, the rustle on a microphone you know, mm. an amateur might not even notice that that's an issue, whereas a professional, of course, would and would want mm. to, to rectify it. And that's the difference is, is that you're, you're being paid to notice the small percentages that add up to the big win, whereas the amateur doesn't notice any of those small percentages. They just get a, a kind of, you know, a 70% sort of like that, that looks generally OK or that sounds generally OK. They don't understand, having got their 70%, why they're vaguely dissatisfied with what they've got. <laughs> yes. They know it's not th- right and they can't put a finger yeah. on why it's not right. I think Joe's point is very important, actually. I mean, the point you're talking about here is that people should be allowed to push the boundaries to get better art out of something once they've learned the basics. That's what you're saying, and I think that's absolutely right. Um, the idea that the whole profession, the whole industry, has been depressed by our, our exposure to stuff that's just about better than nothing, you know, is really where it's gone. I mean, I think, looking back over my career, I was always spoiling programmes on television from my family by saying, boom in shot, you know, all that yeah. kind of stuff, you know. Yeah. And, yeah. And, but my late wife was always, that was that was her, you, you know, you talk about it's all right leaving me, that was her remark about how TV had been ruined and film even had been ruined for her, you know, spotting a vapour trail in some historic costume drama, you know. Yeah. Um, she would always use this word, boom in shot, you know. And I think that sort of thing, you know, is very irritating and I think the public are probably ordinary people are very irritated by the fact that we are so picky but I don't know what the answer is I know that it's sort of gone too far for me because as as I say I see this mobile phone footage coming up on a news program because there isn't anything else and it's it's distracts me enormously you know but the balance between Um, being picky and professional and getting good quality results is what what really interests me and that's what I love about hearing you guys talking and your experiences is you know to to bring it back to kind of my world I'm constantly trying to work out and it's it's on a per project basis you know a, a per you know per song basis whatever I'm doing where is that balance between that's not quite right but it sounds really good and that could be better and I can produce the same result and I and I think that there's lessons that the music sort of studio music world can learn from your experiences doing fail-safe audio, if you like, <laughs> um, mm. <laughs> that I think is really interesting. And that's what I, you know, I, I'm finding that listening to you all speaking, that's that's what's going through my head. I'm thinking, what can I learn from your experiences and what, where does that balance lie? And there isn't a definitive answer. I think it's, it is on a case-by-case basis. If you were to watch any of us doing a sound check for a band we'd be done before anybody else had finished tweaking the EQ on the kick drum <laughs> because we were yeah. used to having to do it with very little prep time. You know, it, you're on air in 10 minutes, we can't mess around. But we've sort of, it is that thing of, right, well, this is, this is the mic I'm going to use, this is where I'm going to put it. If there's anything funny about the drum kit, okay, we might make some adjustments. But um, 
we just crack on and we get it done. And I, I imagine that your experience, Joe, playing in sessions at Abbey Road, I bet it's like that there as well. It's very similar, yeah. They, they're very much... I mean, we, we discussed this, that the, the kind of attitude of replicating what's there in a very high-quality way is kind of what your job is and what the job at... Uh, my experience of the sessions that I did at Abbey Road was e- exactly the same. There's not a huge amount of creativity involved in it. It's basically just the extremely high-quality replication of what's been put in front of them, which I, I don't think is necessarily a bad thing at all. But, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. That is the case. We're much more likely to go off-piste in post-production because we've always only got the one chance to get it down. There's no spending a day to get a single track down with a band. Mm-hmm. So we've got to get something good on tape or in the computer. But we, I think we did tend to have a bit more freedom for a mix down kind of thing. So Yeah, I think one of the things that we used to do, um, once we started getting 24 track systems in, was we would record cold onto the 24 track and then do all your EQing post the record send so that then you could play back that tape in the time when the band was going for the coffee and before they went on live to check your EQ settings and actually do your mix using basically well, the line inputs of the desk as a source where the microphones were before and using the 24 track to do that. I mean, that was, was something that you picked up as a time saver. Yeah, indeed, it bought us time because as long as you recorded your sound check, the sound check could last longer than the band are prepared to sit there. I think, I mean, I've covered all of the areas that I'm I'm happy covering, you know, that I was interested in. I feel like there's probably days worth of conversation <laughs> that could be had here. And there's so, you guys have got collectively such a vast amount of experience that I could delve into any one of the topics that we've discussed and, and do another two hours on each one of them. Um, and I'd, I'd love to, but we, <laughs> yeah. you know, time is, uh, is not quite limitless. <laughs> But yeah, I really all really appreciate you getting together and um, and doing this. It's something completely different for the podcast that I'm quite excited to uh, to get out there. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, it has yeah. been a pleasure. Yeah, it's been really interesting, Joe. It's been most enjoyable right, session. Okay, cheers, guys. See cheers. You. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. So there we have it, the second part of my conversation with the BBC old-timers. I do feel quite guilty calling them old-timers, because I know Phil, and he's not particularly old. Um, anyway, that's what he referred to them as, and I think it's quite funny. <laughs> um, so yeah, I really, really do hope you enjoyed that. As I said at the beginning of the first episode, it's really special that we get to listen into conversations like that. It's a side of the industry that we often don't get a look into. You know, we're working in studios every day, and that's quite accessible these days to a lot of people and there's plenty of information online about what what a studio environment is like um but there really isn't the in, the discussion about what the the sort of nuances of different studio environments so i've really enjoyed that conversation there's lots that i took from those guys that i am applying to the way that i work um and so you know when it's those little small percentages that you gain from those conversations that are really really useful so i'm incredibly grateful for all of those guys taking the time out to to speak to us 
and I really do hope that you enjoyed it. Um, as I said, I've got lots of uh, new episodes next week. I haven't actually decided which one I'm going to do. <laughs> I'm speaking to a, a brand new episode on Monday, speaking to an episode. Speaking to a brand new guest on Monday, and I'll decide whether that episode goes out or whether one that I've got that, that's sort of stashed away goes out. I'll, uh, you'll have to wait and see. <laughs> um, so before I leave you, just a reminder that you can find me online. It's allyouneedisdrums.com. Um, my Instagram is at all you need is drums or if you're interested in drum sessions then at Joe Montague drums um, so go and check that out uh, also a huge thank you to Adam Mallet for designing the artwork for the podcast to Joe Kane for the intro and outro music to you guys for listening and to Sam at Make Noise Pro Audio for sponsoring and I will be back next week goodbye <laughs>